And if you are just visiting with us, we have been in Luke's gospel for uh, quite some time here over the past several months, and things are really starting to heat up between Jesus and the religious leaders. We saw, we've seen in the last couple weeks that uh, there's some conflict that's starting to, to come to the surface. There's some accusations that are starting to be made about Jesus, and we're going to see this morning that Jesus is going to be engaged in two showdowns, two Sabbath showdowns with these religious leaders. And I don't know about you, but uh, when I read this and I read about this conflict, it, it makes me think about my childhood. It makes me think about arguments that I got into, and I loved to debate with people. Uh, I loved to debate because I thought I was right about everything. And there were only two colors uh, in the world. It was black and it was white, right? And something was either totally right or totally wrong. And I was usually the one who was totally right. And so I just loved to to argue with people about everything. And uh, I can remember my stepsister, Melissa, and I, we would just get into it about everything. We would argue and debate, and I would just go at her because I, I thought I was right. And honestly, to this day, I can't remember the contents of one single argument that we had. That's how ridiculous it was. But I just loved to debate. I wanted to be right. And uh, that, you know, that works okay when you're a teenager with other teenagers, but as you become an adult, uh, it doesn't always work so well. And fast forward a little bit to when I I should have known better and and was more mature, probably about 28 years old when I started seminary. And I, I started seminary and I started, you know, Still thought, like, theologically, I had my, my categories right, and everything was, like, black or white, um, until I started reading and studying, and especially studying church history and going, like, oh, shoot, like, all these things that I thought were just these airtight arguments that I knew exactly, you know, what I believed or, or whatever, maybe aren't as black and white as I wanted them to be. And the reality, I realized, that there's a, that there's a lot more gray Now, what I'm not saying is that there's not anything that's black and white. I'm not saying that there's not objective truth, objective reality. But I think when we're we're doing theology, uh, especially when we're following Jesus, the extremes, there's not not only these extremes of it's all good or it's all bad or things are all, all right or all wrong. And some of you might be squirming in your seat when I say that and being like, what, does this guy like not believe the Bible anymore? <laughs> but some of you might be sitting there and you might have wrestled with those same things that I wrestled with. And you might be breathing a sigh of relief that somebody is finally saying this out loud. It's okay to, to struggle. It's okay to have questions. And the truth is, is that following Jesus is not easy, right? Being a Christian in this world is not easy, And it's not because Jesus is complicated. It's not because he doesn't say what's true. It's because we're complicated, right? It's because we don't get things right. Life in a sinful world is complicated, isn't it? And what we have seen, what have we seen in the last few chapters in Jesus' ministry? We've seen chapter 4 where he stands up and preaches in Nazareth and he basically tells us that we're all poor and captive and blind and oppressed. And that he has come to set us free. Saw the reaction, right? They, they stand up and they drive him out and try to kill him. We've seen his claims of authority and power. Those things have been acted out in exorcisms, in healings, in the preaching of the good news of the kingdom of God. We've seen that we're spiritually sick and we need a doctor to come and heal us of, of our spiritual sickness. To heal our souls and to forgive our sins. 
We saw last week Jesus' parable about the new wine, that something new is here, that Jesus is coming. He's shaking things up and he's confronting business as usual. And the question that we're faced with as followers of Jesus or as skeptics in general and as readers of Luke's gospel here in particular is what are we going to do about Jesus? How are we going to respond to his claims? And I'm kind of going to build a lot of the message off of this, so please try to track with, with me for the next couple minutes here. I think what, what we often do, there's two common responses. I think we, most of us either fall into to one camp on this side or we fall into a camp on this side in these two extremes. The first extreme is the just tell me what to do Jesus camp, right? And that's legalism. Just give me the clear rules so that I can keep the rules and everything's all good. And if you've tried that, you know how that goes, right? The second camp, the second extreme is the don't tell me what to do Jesus camp. That's license. That might be the person who says, I want what Jesus has to offer, right? I want forgiveness of my sins. I want eternal life. But I don't want to do the hard work of Christian discipleship. And we know that that doesn't work either. So we need to avoid these two extremes. The passage today, I'm going to argue, presents us with a better way. It's not legalism on the one hand, and it's not license on the other hand. It takes the focus off of us and what we can do, and it correctly puts it back on Jesus and who he is and what he has already done. In this passage, in these two accounts here, Jesus is going to both tell us and show us who he is in these two Sabbath showdowns. So let's go to the text, Luke's, Luke chapter 6, verses 1 through 11, and please pay attention to the reading of God's word. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and took and ate of the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him? And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered, and the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we need your word to come and pierce 
into our souls, to pierce into our hearts, to reveal the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. God, to show us how much we need you, to show us our need for grace, to show us our need for forgiveness, to show us our need to be restored to a right relationship to you. So God, I ask that you would do that this morning through your word, that it would be declared clearly, that we would receive it as you have meant us to, and that we would be changed by you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the question that is presented to us in these two Sabbath accounts, at least on the surface, is what is lawful on the Sabbath? And a lot could be said about the Old Testament Sabbath requirements, uh, what that means, how that translates over uh, to, for us today as Christians. These are all great questions. It's kind of a lot to get into, um, but it's a little bit beyond the scope of what I think Jesus is trying to communicate here. That said, Jesus is opening up a big can of worms here, uh, and I think all well-meaning, Bible-believing, Bible-loving Christians may disagree on how some of these things play out today in our lives and in the church, and and I'd love to talk with you about those things, but again, I'm not going to be focusing on that so much. So in other words, our goal this morning is not just, it's not for the just tell me what to do, Jesus people, to walk away with clearer boundaries, right? So, okay, pastor told me this is what I need to do on on the Sabbath, right? So I'm just going to go do it. Or, it's not for the don't tell me what to do, Jesus people, to say, see, I knew I could do whatever I wanted on the Sabbath. It doesn't matter. I'm just going to be free to do whatever I want. It's, It's not those two extremes. Again, the goal is to better know and to follow the one who in these two encounters reveals his true identity in word and deed and then challenges us to respond accordingly. So let's dive into these two showdowns. The first one happens while Jesus and his disciples are walking through some grain fields and eating some grain. Uh, obviously, this is, these fields don't belong to them, right? None of them were farmers. Uh, so we, we might, our first question might be like, are they trespassing? Is what they're doing illegal? Actually, no, this is not a problem because in the Old Testament, at the end of Deuteronomy chapter 23, uh, in a section that's titled Miscellaneous Laws, if you read through uh, some of the Old Testament, there's, you know, there's like laws after laws, and they're in all these categories. Well, there's this one short section where it's just got these kind of random miscellaneous laws. And there's two interesting provisions right at the end of Deut- Deuteronomy chapter 23. It says that you can go into your neighbor's vineyard, and you can pick as many grapes as you want, and you can eat them. Just don't put them in your bag and take them home with you, right? That kind of makes sense. Like, if you're walking along the road, and you're hungry in ancient Israel, and your neighbor's got a vineyard, well... Yeah, I mean, eat some grapes. It's not going to harm his crop if you eat like 20 grapes, right? Okay, we're good with that one. Second one, you can go into your neighbor's standing grain and you can pluck some ears of corn and you can rub it in your hands and you can eat it. That's okay. Just don't come with your sickle and start chopping down your neighbor's grain and package it all up and take it home, right? That's probably going to harm your neighbor's crop, okay? So these laws were put in place for provision so that people wouldn't starve and wouldn't be unnecessarily hungry. This is kind of, kind of like a love-your-neighbor type of ethic in the Old Testament, right? God's providing for his people in these ways. And if the farmer goes out and sees someone in his field just eating a few grapes, he's not going to be like, what are you doing? Get out of here, right? Like, okay, we have an understanding here. 
Well, that's what's going on here with Jesus and his disciples. They're walking through. They come across this field. They pluck. They, they eat, and they rub the grain in their hands. And their issue is, is that they're doing it on the Sabbath. So that the, the whole controversy here is not that they're doing those things because there was provision for those things in the law. The controversy that the Pharisees have is that they're doing these things on the Sabbath. So, the, what, so what's going on here in the context, the Jewish rabbis in this time, they had come up with a list of 39 things, 39 prohibited activities that were not to be done on the Sabbath. And they're in these different, they're in four different categories. Eleven of them all have to do with bread. And it starts from planting the seeds all the way up through baking the bread. And this whole list of these 11 things and that whole process from getting the seed in the ground to getting it on your table, you couldn't do any of those things on the Sabbath. So back to the Pharisees' question then. Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? How does Jesus answer them? He doesn't answer them in the way that the legalism camp or the license camp wants him to. The legalism camp wants him to go after the Pharisees. He wants them to go and open up Deuteronomy 23 and say, See, look at the scriptures. See what it says? This is, we can do this, right? He wants them to go and unpack. He he wants to get out the 39 Sabbath prohibitions that were man-made. This is the black and white slam dunk argument. Case closed. Jesus could have done that. And the legalism people would have been like, Yeah, get him, Jesus. The license camp wants Jesus to say, ah, who cares about the Sabbath anyways, right? Remember how I talked about the new wine and the new new wineskins? None of that old stuff matters anyways. This is a new time. But Jesus doesn't do either of those things. How does he respond instead? He actually comes and challenges them at their own game. His reply comes in the form of a rebuke. He goes to the scriptures. He says, have you not read? And this is, this probably could better be translated, surely you have read, haven't you? It's coming in the form of a rebuke. You guys, of all people, you guys should know this. He's saying, you keepers, you knowers of the rules, surely you know about David and his men, don't you? You who are so quick to accuse me of my, and my men of law-breaking on the Sabbath, You should know this stuff. So this is really interesting. This response by Jesus is by way of analogy. Because the story he's pointing to doesn't apply to the Sabbath. David and his men, there's nothing in the story about David and his men going into the temple and eating the bread that was only for the priest. There's nothing about that story happening on the Sabbath. So that's not the issue that Jesus is even dealing with. So he he tells them, he reminds them of this story, which if you've read through First uh, Samuel, you'd be familiar with this story in First Samuel chapter 21. It's just after the story where David and Jonathan say goodbye to each other. He sends David out in the field and shoots the arrows and tells him, you know, if the messenger does this, and the, me- the message is, you got to run for your life, right, because my father Saul is coming after you. Well, the very next chapter here, chapter 21, David is fleeing Saul. He's running for his life. Then he com- he's comes to the the priest and, and Nob comes to Ahimelech, the priest, and he's hungry, David and his men, and he says, I don't have anything here except for the bread of the presence, and the only people who are supposed to be allowed to eat that are the, are the priests, but he says, I'm going to give it to you anyways. So, you know, David 
in a sense, breaks the law. The priest breaks the law. And Jesus' whole point here, he, he doesn't go on and, and give some lengthy exp- explanation of this analogy about David and his men. Because when he, right as soon as he tells them this story, they know that they're caught in their hypocrisy. They know that they're misapplying the law. Jesus is trying to say, look, what me and my disciples are doing here, eating this grain on the Sabbath, is out of necessity because we're hungry. Look what David did. It wasn't even on the Sabbath. You guys are getting caught up in all these rules and all these regulations, and you're trying to pin them on me, and I'm pointing you to something that of all people, David shouldn't have done that, right? The king of Israel should not have done that, but God allowed him to do that for their provision, for their survival. And they can't even respond, right? They know they're busted. They have no response. And Jesus simply says, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. And the emphasis here in the word order in the Greek is the first word in this whole statement by Jesus is Lord. And it's kind of like Yoda talking. Lord is of the Sabbath, the Son of Man, right? He doesn't know how to speak proper English. Lord is the first word in this statement by Jesus, okay? He's saying, I am the Lord. I am the one who makes the rules. I am the one to whom all of you need to submit. And Luke doesn't record any further interaction here, but this is, this is kind of like a mic drop, right? Like Jesus says this and just turns and walks away, and it's like, okay, point taken. And he leaves the Pharisees frustrated and angry, and we're going to see that anger come out at the end of the next section. But what's the main point here in all this? What's the takeaway for us? I said that Jesus is going to tell us who he is and show us who he is. Well, this part is the telling, right? The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. We saw this title, Son of Man, a couple weeks ago when Jesus healed the paralytic in chapter 5. The Son of Man has authority that you may know. He said that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He told the man to, to rise up and take his bed and go home. And this title that Jesus uses for himself, Son of Man, goes directly back to Daniel chapter 7, where the Son of Man comes before the Ancient of Days, and he's given glory and a kingdom and everlasting dominion. So Jesus is making this very clear statement about who he is, saying, I am the Son of Man. I am the Daniel 7, Son of Man, to whom all authority and dominion and power and glory has been given by my Father. And Jesus continues to build on these previous claims that he has made to have authority and power from God. Authority to interpret the scriptures correctly, which he does here as they're trying to twist it. And to tell us how life in the kingdom of God is to operate. To the legalist, he says, you want clear lines for everything? It doesn't work that way. God is gracious, and he provides for his people in times of need and in times of necessity. To the one seeking license, he says, I'm still in authority, and I'm the Lord, and I still make the rules. But again, what's the takeaway for us? I think for us, the takeaway in this is to search our own hearts. I don't think it's for the one who struggles with adding more rules to just cast off restraint and dabble in sin so that we don't feel so legalistic all the time, right? Or for the one who struggles with excusing their sin because God is gracious, the answer is not saying, now I just need to put some stricter rules on, my, on myself so I don't feel so much license to sin. 
I don't know about you, and I'm assuming a lot of you are probably like me in this, but it kind of, depending on the issue, right, I think it's easy to kind of swing from one extreme to the other, right? There's certain things we feel really passionate about, right? Like, got to do this, got to keep the rules, and there's other things like, yeah, you know, like, I can make some excuses and kind of do my thing over here, right? Following Jesus isn't easy, I said before, because we're complicated, right? That's the reality of our lives. We swing on that pendulum from one extreme to the other. But could it be, could it be that doing life together in Christian community with fellow complicated sinners who have been saved by grace as we learn to love and to encourage and to bear with one another, as we submit to Jesus and his authority as the Lord over all, could it be that this is how we are to work through these challenging questions related to our sanctification and our growth in grace, right? It's not just for me to sit home and say, oh, I'm struggling here with this, and I'm struggling here with this. No, it's to come together with God's people, to sit under the preaching of God's word, to be challenged by him, to be challenged by our brothers and sisters in Christ, and say, yeah, you know what? I do struggle sometimes on this extreme, or I do struggle sometimes on that extreme, and I need you guys to help me, right? I need that accountability. I need to be able to be open about those struggles that I have in my life. And you don't have to have been a Christian for very long to realize a couple things. First is that the Christian life is not a cakewalk, all right? It's not easy. Because the moment we submit ourselves to the Lordship of Christ, just like Chris talked about, right? That, that magnifying glass shines on us, right? And we're exposed, whether it's this extreme over here or this extreme over here. God exposes us, and that's not always a comfortable place to be. The second thing that we realize is that God has not designed for us to do this thing alone, right? We're not designed to live the Christian life on our own. He's designed for us to do it in community. So Living Stone Church, let us continue to remain submitted to Jesus and his word and committed to building up one another in the faith. That's the first showdown. The second showdown happens on another Sabbath day. Jesus goes into the synagogue, which is the Jewish place of worship. He's teaching there in the synagogue. We've seen this before. And there's a man there with a withered hand. Now notice what is going on here. It says in verse 7, And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him. Now this is not just kind of like, you know, kind of this... This is like spying. This is like intentionally going after Jesus. In secular Greek, this word was actually used for an eagle chasing a smaller bird, right? This is like they're watching him like a hawk. They're going after Jesus. They're not going to let anything slip by them, okay? So they're trying to trap him. They're trying to find a reason to accuse him of breaking the Sabbath. They want to see, is he going to heal this guy? Something that's interesting, we don't know if this is actually the same group of Pharisees from the first encounter. It it probably is. They're probably following him around. And if so, I think, you know, is is what they're doing here because they realize that they tried to get him earlier, right, in the grain fields. They tried to bust him there, and that didn't work. So now they think, okay, if we can get him in the place of worship, if if we can bust him here, then he's totally busted. There's a bit of irony here. In verse 8, it says, 
But he knew their thoughts. Here they are, watching him, right? They're spying on him. They've been tracking him. This is at least a week later, right? It's because it's on another Sabbath day. It could have been months later. But can you imagine for a whole week, they're, they're behind closed doors, like, how are we going to get Jesus? What can, let's, let's get him, right? Like, that didn't work in the fields. we we got to get him here. I know. Let's go out. Let's go in the synagogue. And if we can get him to slip up, right, on something theologically, we got him. And he's totally busted. So they're scheming, right? They're plotting. And here Jesus is. He knows their thoughts. They're watching him. They're trying to trap him. But his all-knowing, all-seeing eye is peering right into the depths of their wicked hearts and their wicked thoughts. And they're totally exposed. But they don't know it, right? They don't know that he knows. Jesus calls the man with the withered hand to come and stand before them all, to stand in the midst of them. And then he turns to address his silent critics and again exposes their hearts with a piercing question in verse 9. I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? Their lack of compassion for this man who was hurting, whose very livelihood was threatened by his inability to use his hand to do meaningful work, Their lack of compassion for him is a glaring condemnation of their focus on the letter of the law and not the heart behind it. In the parallel account of this in Matthew's gospel, they ask ask Jesus, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And he responds to them by saying, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on a Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep, right? God cares more about this man than he cares about a sheep who falls into a pit. So Jesus says, so it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. There he answers their question. He's saying, if you're willing to rescue the sheep, why would I not be willing to rescue this sheep of mine, this man who is in need of rescue? So there's there's the irony there in verse 8. There's that confrontation in verse 9. And then in the last two verses, there's some more beautiful irony. Verse 10, how does Jesus heal? Does he actually do anything that might be considered work on the Sabbath? Nope, (laughs) right? He doesn't stand up. He doesn't go and touch the man. He simply speaks, right? Beautiful, right? No physical effort at all. Take that, Pharisees. And then... Jesus had asked whether it was lawful to do good or harm, to save or to destroy life on the Sabbath. And the irony just continues because here these Pharisees are seeking to do harm to Jesus on the Sabbath, right? Again, he has just totally exposed their motives. It says they're filled with fury. They discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. In Matthew's account, it says... They went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. It's the same word that Jesus uses it, better to save life or to destroy it. Matthew says they conspired how to destroy him, right? Luke's, Luke says what to do to him. Matthew's saying they're literally trying to kill him, right? They want to take him out. They want to end his life. Here he is healing a guy with a withered hand, and they're saying, uh-uh, not on the Sabbath, you're a dead man. I mean, Ridiculous, right? Totally crazy. 
Well, what's the point here in this second encounter? Jesus demonstrates his authority over sickness. And he shows what it looks like to have compassion for lost and broken people. He lovingly confronts those who are seeking to end his life. And he continues to fill his messianic purposes to liberate and to heal and to forgive and to declare the kingdom of God. All the things we've seen him doing at the beginning of his ministry. And you know what? He didn't turn his back on all the Pharisees. If you fast forward to the book of Acts, there's a young, zealous Pharisee who is so intent on destroying the movement, on destroying the followers of Jesus, that he stood by and approved the execution of a young man named Stephen in Acts chapter 7. All Stephen did was speak the truth about who Jesus is to the Jewish people. And he stood there and approved of his death. But despite this man's wickedness in seeking to destroy the followers of Jesus, Jesus did not leave him alone. Jesus came after him. By grace and by grace alone, he came to this man named Saul, and he opened his eyes, and he made him new, just like he does for you and for me. Saul, who became Paul, he knew all the rules, right? A Hebrew of Hebrews. He had all the rules down pat. He could have recited those 39 Sabbath regulations backward and forward, just like those Pharisees in the grain field that day. He would have stood and plotted along with them in the synagogue how to take Jesus out and how to destroy him and to destroy his followers. And you would have, and I would have. Our Savior went to the cross for all of those who wanted to try and keep all of the rules in order to be right with God, and for all of those who broke all the rules and didn't give a rip about what God says. And it doesn't matter which one you are. You need Jesus. You need his grace, whether you think you've got yourself all put together or whether you know that your life is a wreck. And I want to close with some wisdom from that young man. That Pharisee who tried to destroy the early church. He knew a thing or two about trying to justify himself before God by keeping the rules and doing all the right things. And he knew that casting off all restraint and all rules wasn't the answer either. He knew the answer. It's the Sunday school answer, right? It's simple. It's Jesus But it's not just in some touchy-feely kind of way, but in a real practical sense of us understanding and embracing our union with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. It's fitting for us as we think about getting ready for Good Friday and Easter. But again, this isn't just for us as a bunch of individuals. It's a call for us to pursue Jesus and to live out the one another's of the gospel in community as the body of Christ. So if you turn with me to Colossians chapter 2, if you have the Pew Bibles, that's on page 984. Give you a second to turn there. I'm going to be reading Colossians chapter 2, verse 216 through 317. I would just encourage you to maybe later this afternoon or, or sometime this week to 
take some time and just and meditate on this passage, kind of in light of, of what we talked about this morning. What does it look like? Uh, how does Jesus want me to live, both as an individual Christian and in Christian community, in light of those two extremes that it's easy to struggle with, right? And think about Paul, right? Think about Paul's life being the, being the rule keeper and, and what Jesus did to save him. And think about um, what God calls us to as Christians. <clears throat> Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Okay, and just let me pause there for a second. Paul's saying the indulgence of the flesh needs to be stopped, right? But this is not the way to do it. There is a way to do it that we all need to practice, okay? And that's what he's going to say now in chapter 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died. For you have died, Christian. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Hallelujah. Okay? That's looking forward, right? And we wish we could be there right now. But the reality is, is we're not there yet, so we need to struggle, right? What does he say about the struggle? Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these two you once walked when you were living in them. Notice the past tense. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, right? Hello, Pharisees in the synagogue that day, right? Put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. 
And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Amen. Let's pray. God, we need this reminder that we can so easily fall into these extremes. We can be just like the Pharisees, trying to keep every, every little rule, trying to justify ourselves by what we do. We can swing to the other extreme and, and throw off restraint and just think that we can do whatever we want without submitting to you. But God, we thank you that your grace brings us back. Your grace brings us to the center where we see our need, where we see our sin, where we see that we try to justify ourselves, that we try to go our own way and not care what you say. Lord, as we think about even these challenges here from Colossians 2 and 3, that there is a call to put to death what is earthly in us. There is a call to put on what is heavenly from you. God, as we walk this life, as we walk this Christian life in this world where there are temptations on every side, we need your grace. We need your spirit to lead us and guide us so we don't fall off the path on either side. We need one another. God, it is not by our own strength. We need our brothers and sisters in Christ. We need to gather and encourage and build up one another and lift one another up and keep one another from stumbling. God, would you remind us of our need for you? Would you show us how wonderful Christ is and what he has done for us? Would you help us to have compassionate hearts, thankful hearts, Would you help us to forgive one another, bear one another's burdens, and love one another in the way that you have told us to? We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.